Welcome to this Uvula audio presentation of the ninth and final volume of Rip Foster, Rides the Great Planet. Chapter 18, Courtesy with Claws. Sagittarius, constellation of the archer, and Aquila, constellation of the eagle, had given the two Federation patrol cruisers their names. The eagle was commanded by a tough Scotsman and the archer by a Frenchman. Commander McFife spoke through the communicator. Switch bars to Universal Lad. Me and Dolly in are going to talk to this Connie into a brawl mess. McFife off. Rip guessed that the two cruiser commanders had been in communication while en route to the asteroid and had cooked up some kind of a plan. He turned the band switch to the universal frequency with which all long-range communicators were equipped. Each of the Earth groups had its own frequency, and so did the Martians and the Jovians, but all could meet and talk on the universal band. Special scrambling devices prevented eavesdropping on the regular frequencies, so there was no danger that the Connie had overheard the plan. Rip wondered what it was. He knew the cruisers had to be careful not to cross the thin line that might lead to war. The Sagittarius loomed closer, decelerating with a tremendous exhaust. The Connies couldn't have failed to see it, Rip knew. And he was right. The Consop's cruiser suddenly blasted more heavily, rushing in the direction away from the Federation ships. The direction was toward the asteroid. At that same moment, the Aquila flashed above the horizon, also decelerating. The Connie was caught squarely. A suave voice spoke on the universal band. This is Federation SCN Sagittarius, calling the consolidation cruise on the asteroid. Please reply. Rip waited anxiously. The Connie would hear, because every control room monitored the universal band. A heavy, reluctant voice replied after a pause of over a minute. This is Consolidation Cruiser 16. You are breaking the law, Sagittarius. Your missile ports are open. They are pointing at me. Close them at once, or I will report this. The suave voice with its hint of French accent replied, Ah, my friend, do not be alarmed. We have had a slight accident to our control circuit, and the ports are jammed open. We are trying to repair the situation, but I assure you, we have only the friendliest of intentions. Rip grinned. This was about the same as a man holding a cocked pistol at another man's head, and assuring him it was nothing but a nervous arm that kept the gun so steady. The Connie demanded, What do you mean? The two friendly cruisers were within a few miles of the Connie now, and their blasts were just strong enough to keep them edging closer, while counteracting the sun's pull. The Frenchman spoke reassuringly. My friend, we only want the courtesy of space to which the Lord tackles us. We've had an unfortunate accident to our astrogation instruments, and we wish to come aboard to compare them with yours. Rip laughed outright. Every cruiser carried at least four full sets of instruments. There was as much chance of all of them being knocked off scale at once as there was of biting a cruiser in half with his bare teeth. McFife's voice came on the air. Foster, switch to the Federation frequency. Rip did so. This is Foster, Commander. Lad, it's a pity for ye to miss the show. I'm sending a boat for ye. But the sun will get it, Rip exclaimed. Never fear, it won't get this one. Now switch back to Universal and listen in. Rip did so in time to catch the Connie commander's voice. And I refuse to believe such a story. 
great cosmos. Do you think I am such a fool? Of course not, the Frenchman replied. You are not such a fool as to refuse a simple request to check out instruments. The Sagittarius commander was right. Rip understood the strategy. Equipment sometimes did go out of operation in space, and Connie's had no hesitation in asking Federation cruisers for help, or the other way around. Such things were always given because no commander could be sure when he might need help himself. I agree, the Connie commander said, with obvious reluctance. You may send a boat. McFife's Scotch Burr broke in. Federation SCR Aquila to Consolidation 16. Mister, my instruments are off scale too. I'll just send them along to you, and you can check them while you're doing the Sagittarius. I object! The Connie bellowed. Come now! McFife burred smoothly. Checking a few instruments won't hurt you. A small rocket exhaust appeared leaving the Aquila. The exhaust grew rapidly, more rapidly than that of any snapper boat. Rip watched it while keeping his ears tuned to the space conversation. Koa tugged his arm. Do you see that, sir? Rip nodded. Surely sending boats is too much of a nuisance, the French commander said winningly. We will just come alongside. It is a trick, the Connie growled. You want me to open my valves? Then your men will board us and try to take over my ship. My friend, you have such a suspicious mind. Gallien replied smoothly. If you wish, our little men, ours will have no weapons. Try and launch us on the valves so our men will be annihilated before they can board. If you see a single weapon. This was going too far, Rip thought. But it was not his affair, and he didn't know exactly what McFife and Gallien had in mind. The Aquila's boat arrived with astonishing speed. Rip saw it in the flash of sunlight and knew he had never seen one like this before. It was a perfect globe, about 20 feet in diameter. Blast holes covered the globe at intervals of 6 feet. The boat settled on the asteroid, and a new voice called over the helmet circuit. Where's Boston? Shown exhaust. We're a rush here. Rip ordered. Take over, Koa. I'll be back. Yes, sir. He hurried to the boat and stood there, bewildered. He didn't know how to get in. Up here, the voice called. He looked up and saw a hatch. He jumped and a space-clad figure pulled him inside. The door shut, and the boat blasted off. Acceleration shoved him backwards, but the spaceman snapped a line to his belt, then motioned him to a seat. Rip pulled himself up the line and got into the seat, snapping the harness into place. I'm Hawkins, senior space officer, the spaceman said. Welcome, Foster. We've been losing weight, wondering if we'd get here in time. I was never so glad to see spacemen in my life, Rip said truthfully. What kind of craft is this, sir? Experimental, the space officer answered. It has a number, but we call it the ball bat because it's shaped like a ball and goes like a bat. We were about to take off for some test runs around the space platform when we got a hurried call to come here. The Aquila has two of these. If they prove out, they'll replace the snapper boats. More powerful, greater maneuverability, heavier weapons, and they carry more men. There was only one officer and a pilot, but Rip saw positions for several others. He looked out through the port and saw the two Federation cruisers closing in on the Connie. Apparently, the Connie commander had agreed to let the cruisers come alongside. The ball bat blasted to the Aquila, paused at an open port, then slid inside. The valve was shut before Rip could unbuckle his harness. Air flooded into the chamber and lights flickered on. 
The space officer gave Rip a hand out of the harness, and the young planeteer went through the hatch to the deck. The inner valve opened, and a lean, sandy-haired officer in space blue with the insignia of a commander stepped through. Grinning, he hurried to Rip's side and twisted his bubble, lifting it off. Hurry, lad, he greeted Rip. I'm McFife. Get out of that suit quick, because you don't want to miss what's about to happen. With his own hands, he unlocked the complicated belt with its gadgets and equipment, disconnected the communicator and ventilator, and then unfastened the lock clips that held top and bottom of the suit together. Rip slipped the upper part over his head and stepped out of the bottom. Thanks, Commander. Come on, we'll hurry right across the ship to the opposite valve. Lad, I've a son in the planetaires, and it's just about your own age. He's on Ganymede. He and the others will be proud of what you've done. McFife was pulling himself along rapidly by the convenient handholds. Rip followed, his breathing a little rapid in the heavier air of the ship. He followed the Scottish commander through the maze of passages that crossed the ship and stopped at a valve where a spaceman was waiting. With them was an officer who carried a big case. The instruments, McFive said, pointing. We've tinkered with them just a bit to make it look real. But why do you want to board the Connie? Rip asked curiously. McFive's eye closed in a wink. You'll see. There was a slight bump as the cruiser touched the Connie. The waiting group recovered balance and faced the valve. Rip knew that the spacemen and the inner lock were making fast to the Connie cruiser, setting up an airtight seal. It wasn't long before a bell sounded and a spaceman opened the inner valve. Two men in spacesuits were waiting, and beyond them, the outer valve was joined by a tube to the outer valve of the Connie ship. Rip stared at the Connie spacemen in their red tunics and gray trousers. One, a scouting officer with two pistols in his belt, stepped forward. Rip noted that the other Connies were heavy with weapons, too, and none of his group had any. I'm the commander, scowled the Connie. Bring your instruments in quickly. We will check them and then get you out. You're no very friendly, McFife said, his burr even more pronounced. He let Rip and the officer with the instruments into the Connie ship. A handsome Federation spaceman with a mustache, the first Rip had ever seen, stepped into the room from a passageway on the opposite side. The spaceman bowed with exquisite grace. I have the honor of making myself known, he proclaimed. Commander Remy Gallien of the Sagittarius. The Connie commander grunted. He was afraid, Rip realized. The Connie suspected a trick and he had no idea what it might be. Rip looked him over with interest. This was the man who had been willing to burn his own spacemen back at the asteroid belt. Gallien saw Rip's black uniform and hurried to shake his hand. So this is the young lieutenant who is responsible. Lieutenant, today the spacemen honor the planetiers because of you. Most days we fight each other, but today we fight together, eh? I'm glad to meet you. And I'm glad to meet you, sir, Rip returned. He liked the twinkle in the Frenchman's eye. He would have given a lot to know what scheme Gallien and McFife had cooked up. The Connie had overheard Gallien's greeting. He glared at Rip. The Frenchman saw the look and smiled happily. Ah, you two know each other. Come in there. I have the honor to make known Lieutenant Faster of the Federation Special Order Squadron. He is in command on the asteroid. The Connie blurted. So, I sent boats to help you, and you fire on them. So, that was the Consop story, Rip thought. Then quickly he held up his hand in a shocked gesture that would have done credit to the Frenchman. Oh no, Commander, you misunderstand. 
We had no way of communicating by radio, so I did the only thing we could do. I fired rockets as a warning. We didn't want your boats to get caught in a nuclear explosion. He shrugged. It was very unlucky for us that the sun threw my gunner's aim off and he hit your boats. Quite by accident. Very sorry. McFive coughed to cover up a chuckle. Gallien hit a smile by stroking his mustache. The Connie commander growled. And I suppose it was accident. You took my men prisoner. Prisoner? Rip looked bewildered. We didn't take any prisoners. When your boats arrived, the men asked if they might not join us. They claimed refuge, which we had to give them under interplanetary law. I will take them back, the Connie stated flatly. No, you will not, Gallien replied with equal positiveness. The laws were clear, my friend. Your men may return willingly, but you cannot force them. When we reach Terra, we will give them a choice. Those who wish to return to the consolidation will be given transportation to the nearest border. The Connie commander motioned to a heavily armed officer. Take their instruments! Check them quickly! He put his lips together in a straight line and stared at the Federation men. They stared back with equal coldness. Around them, Connie spacemen with wooden, expressionless faces waited without moving. The minutes ticked by. Rip wondered again what kind of plan McFife and Gallien had. When would the excitement start? Additional minutes passed, and the officer returned with the cases. Wordlessly, he handed them to Gallien and McFife. The Connie commander snapped, There! Now get out of my ship! Gallien bowed. You've been most courteous and gracious. Your conversation has been stimulating, inspiring, and informative. A profound thanks to you. He shook hands with Rip and McFife, bowed to the Connie commander again, and went out the way he had come. There wasn't anything to say after the Frenchman's sarcastic farewell speech. McFife, Rip, and the officer with the instruments went back through the valves into their own ship. Once inside, McFife called, Come with me! Hurry it up! He led the way through passages and up ladders to the very top of the ship, to the hatch where the astrogators took their star sights. The protective shield of Nuclite had been rolled back, and they could see into space through the clear vision port. Rip and McFive hurried to the side where they were connected to the Connie. Rip looked down along the length of the ship. The valve connection was in the middle of each ship, at the point of greatest diameter. From that point, each ship grew more slender. McFive pointed to the Connie nose. Projecting from it like great horns were the ship's steering tubes. Unlike the Federation cruiser, which blasted steam through the internal tubes that did not project, the Connie used chemical fuel. Watch, McFife said. There were similar tubes on the Connie's stern, Rip knew. He wondered what they had to do with the plan. McFife walked to a wall communicator. Follow instructions. He turned to Rip. Remember, lad, the Sagittarius is on the other side of the Connie, about to do the same thing. Rip waited in silence, wondering. Then the voice horn called. Now close! A second voice yelled. Blast! A tremor jarred its way through the entire ship, making the deck throb under Rip's feet. He saw that the ship's nose had swung away from the Connie. What in space? Blast! The nose swung into the Connie again with a jar that sent Rip sliding into the clear plastic of the Astrodome. His nose jammed into the plastic, but he didn't even wince, because he saw the Connie's steering tubes buckle under the Aquila's sudden shove. Suddenly the picture was clear. 
The two Federation cruisers hadn't cared about getting into the Connie's ship. They had only wanted an excuse to tie up to it so they could do what they had just done. They had sheared off the enemy's steering tubes, first at the stern and then at the bow, leaving him helpless, able to go only forward or back in the direction in which he happened to be pointing. McFife had a broad grin on his face. As Rip started to speak, he held up his hand and pointed at a wall speaker. The Connie commander came on the circuit. He screamed, You planned this! You! You! He subsided into his own language. Gallien's voice spoke soothingly. But, my dear commander, how can I apologize enough? Believe me, the man responsible will be rewarded. I mean, the man responsible will be disciplined. You may rest assured of this. How unfortunate. I am overcome with shame. A terrible accident. Terrible. McFive picked at the microphone. Same here, Cody. A terrible accident. Ah, the men who did this will hear from me. It was no accident. The Connie screamed. Ah, Gallien replied. But you cannot prove otherwise, Commander. You realize what this means. You are helpless. Interplanetary losses a headless spaceship must be salvaged and taken in tow by the nearest cruiser, no matter what its nationality. We will do this jointly, the Aquila and Sagittarius. We will take turns towing you, my friend. We will hold you to terror like any other piece of space junk. McFive could remain quiet no longer. Yes, mister, and that's not the end of it. We will collect the salvage fee, one half the value of the salvage vessel. Ah, my men will like that, since we share and share alike on salvage. Now, pull our cable from your nose tube, and we'll take you in tow. He cut the communicator off and met Rip's grin. The two spacemen had figured out the one way to repay the Connie for his attempts on the asteroid. They couldn't fire on him, but they could fake an accident that would cripple him and cost Consops millions of dollars in salvage fees. Nor would Consops refuse to pay. Salvage law was clear. Whoever performed the salvage was not required to turn the ship back to its owners until the fee had been paid and whatever currency he cared to specify. And there was another angle. The cruisers would tow the Connie into the Federation spaceport in New Mexico. If past experience was any indication, the Connie would lose about half its crew, maybe more. They would claim sanctuary in the Federation. Rip shook hands solemnly with the grinning Scotchman. It would be a long time before Consops tried space piracy again. We'll be back at our family fight again tomorrow, McFife said. But today we'll celebrate together. Oh, lad, this is pure joy to me. I've had a score to settle with the Connies for years, but I've done it now. He put an arm around Rip's shoulders. Well, I'm in the given mood, which is not the way of us Scots. Is there anything you'd like? Rip could think of only one thing. A hot shower for me and my men. And will you take the prisoners off our hands? Yes to both. Anything else? We'll need some rocket fuel. Terra says we have to correct course. Also, we'll need a nuclear charge to throw us into a breaking eclipse. And we need a new landing boat. The sun baked the equipment out of ours. McFife nodded. So be it. I'll send men to the asteroid to bring back the prisoners and your planeteers. He smiled. We'll let yon rock go off by itself while hot showers and a good meal are had by all. It's the least of what you've earned. Rip stated his thanks to the Scotsman, but his stomach suddenly turned over and black dizziness flooded in on him. He heard McPhee's sudden exclamation and felt hands on him. White light blinded him. 
He shook his head and tried to keep his stomach from acting up. A voice nearby asked, Were you shielded from those nuclear blasts? No, he said past a constricted throat. Not from the last. We got some prompt radiation. I don't know how much. When was it? The exact time? Rip tried to remember. He felt awful. It was 23.05. Bad, the voice said. He must have taken enough Rankins and Gamma and Neutrons to reach or exceed the median lethal dose. He found his voice again. Santos, he said urgently. On the asteroid. He got it too. The rest were shielded. Get him. Quick. McFife snapped orders. The ball bat would have Santos in the ship within minutes. Being sick in a spacesuit was about the most unpleasant thing that could happen to anybody. A hypospray tingled against Rip's arm. The drug penetrated, caught a quick lift to all the parts of his body through his bloodstream, and consciousness slid away. Chapter 19. Spacefall Rip was never more eloquent. He argued, he begged, he wheedled. The Aquila's chief physician listened with polite interest, but only shook his head. Lieutenant, you are simply not aware of the close call you had. Another two hours without treatments, and we might not have been able to save you. I appreciate that, Rip assured him, but I'm fine now. You are not fine. You are anything but fine. We've loaded you with antibiotics and blood cell regenerators, and we've given you a total transfusion. You feel fine, but you are not fine. The doctor looked at Rip's red hair. That's a fine thatch of hair you have. In a week or two, it will be gone. You'll have no more hair than an egg. A well person doesn't lose hair. The ship's radiation officer had put both Rip and Santos dosimeters into his measuring equipment. They had taken over a hundred rentkins of hard radiation above the tolerance limit. This was the result of being caught unshielded when the last nuclear charge went off. Sir, Rip pleaded, you can load us with suppressives. It's only a few days more before we reach Terra. You can keep us going until then. We'll both turn in for full treatment as soon as we get to the space platform. But we'll have to finish the job. You can see that, can't you, sir? The doctor shook his head. You're a fool, even for a planeteer. Before you get over this, you'll be sicker than you've ever been. You have a month in bed waiting for you. If I let you go back to the asteroid, I'll only be delaying the time when you start full treatment. But the delay won't hurt us if you inject us with suppressives, right? Rip asked quickly. Don't they keep the sickness in check? Yes, for a maximum of about ten days. Then they no longer have sufficient effect, and you will come down with it. But it won't take ten days. It'll only take a couple, and it won't hurt us. McFife had arrived to hear the last exchange. He nodded sympathetically. Doctor, I can appreciate how the lad feels. He started something, and he wants to finish it. If you can let him safely, then I think you should. The doctor shrugged. I can let him. There's a nine-to-one chance it will do him no harm. But the one chance is what I don't like. I'll know if the suppressors start to wear off, won't I? You certainly will. You would get weaker quite rapidly. How rapidly? Perhaps six hours. Perhaps more. Rip nodded. Well, that's what I thought. Doctor, we're less than six hours from Terra by ship. If the stuff starts to wear off, we could be in a hospital in a couple of hours. Once we go into a breaking ellipse, we can reach a hospital in less than an hour by snapper boat. Let him go. McFife said. The doctor was not happy about it. 
but he had run out of arguments. All right, Commander. If you'll assume responsibility for getting him off the asteroid and into a Terra or space platform hospital in time, I'll do that, McPhife assured him. Now get a hypospray and fill him full of that stuff you use. The corporal too. Sergeant, Rip corrected. His first action on getting back to the asteroid would be to recommend Santos's promotion to Terra Base. He intended to recommend Kemp for Corporal, too. He was sure the planeteers at Terra would agree to the promotions. The two Federation cruisers were still holding course along the asteroid, the Connie cruiser between them. Within an hour, Rip and Santos, both in false good health thanks to medical magic, were on their way back to the asteroid in a ball bat boat. The remaining time passed quickly. The sun receded. The planeteers corrected course. Rip sent in his recommendations for promotions and looked over the last nuclear crater to see why the blast had started the asteroid spinning. The reason could only be guessed. The blast probably had opened a fault in the crystal, allowing the explosion to escape partially in the wrong direction. Once the course was corrected, Rip calculated the position for the final nuclear charge. When the asteroid reached the correct position relative to Earth, the charge would not only change its course, but slow its speed somewhat. The asteroid would go around the Earth in a series of ever-tightening ellipses using Terra's gravity. Rocket fuel would slow it down further to the right orbital speed. When it reached the proper position, tubes of rocket fuel would change the course again, putting it into an orbit around the Earth close to the space platform. It wasn't practical to take the thorium rock in for a landing. They would lose control and the asteroid would flame to Earth like the greatest meteor ever to hit the planet. Putting the asteroid into an orbit around the Earth was actually the most delicate part of the whole trip, but Rip wasn't worried. He had the facilities of Terra Base with an easy reach communicator. He dictated his data and let them do the mathematics on the giant electronic computers. He and his men rode the grav planet past the moon, so close they could almost see the planeteer Luna Base, circled Terra in a series of ellipses, and finally blasted the asteroid into its final orbit within sight of the space platform. Landing crafts and snapper boats swarmed to meet them, and within an hour after their arrival, the planeteers were surrounded by spacemen, cadets from the platform, and officers and men wearing planeteer black. A cadet approached Rip and looked at him with awe. Sir, I don't know how you ever did it. And Rip, his eyes on the great curve of Earth, answered casually, There's one thing that every space chick has to learn if he's going to be a planeteer. There's always a way to do anything. To be a planeteer, you have to be able to figure out the way. A new voice spoke up. Now that's real wisdom. Rip turned quickly and looked through a helmet at the grinning face of Major Joe Barris. Barris spoke as though to himself, but Rip turned red as his hair. Funny how fast a man ages in space. The planeteer major remarked. Take Foster. A few weeks ago, he was just a cadet, a raw recruit who had never met Hyvac. Now he's talking like the grandfather of all space. I don't know how the Special Order Squadrons ever got along before he became an officer. Rip had been feeling a little too proud of himself. Good to be back, Rip said. Chapter 20 On the Platform There were two things Rip could see from his hospital bed on the space platform. One was the great curve of the Earth. He was anxious to get out of the hospital and back to Terra. The second was the asteroid. Spacemen were at work on it, slowly cutting it to pieces. The pieces were small enough to be carried back to Earth in supply rockets. 
It would be a long time before the asteroid was completely cut up and transported to Terra Base. Sergeant Major Koa came into the hospital ward and sat on Rip's bed. The plastifoam mattress compressed under his weight. How are you feeling, sir? Pretty good, Rip replied. The worst of the radiation sickness was over, and he was mending fast. Here and there were little blood stains just below the surface of his skin, and he had no more hair than a plastic ball. Otherwise, he looked normal. The stains would go away, and his hair would grow back within a matter of weeks. Santos, now officially a sergeant, was in the same condition. The rest of Rip's planeteers had resumed duties on the space platform. He saw them frequently because they made a point of dropping in whenever they were near the hospital area. Koa looked out at the asteroid. I sort of hate to see that rock cut up. There isn't much about a chunk of thorium to get sentimental over, but after fighting for it the way we did, it doesn't seem quite right to cut it into blocks. I know how you feel, Rip admitted, but after all, that's what we brought it back for. He studied Koa's brown face. The big Hawaiian had something on his mind. Got vacworms chewing at you? he asked. Vacworms were a spaceman's equivalent of the blues. Not exactly, sir. I happened to overhear the doctor talking the other day. You're due to leave in a week. Well, that's great news, Rip exclaimed. You're not unhappy about that, are you? Koa shrugged. We were all hoping we'd be together on our next assignment. The gang likes serving under you. But we're overdue for a shipment to somewhere, and if you take eight weeks to leave, we'll be gone by the time you come back to the platform. Well, I like serving with all of you guys, too, Rip replied. I watched the way you all behaved when the space flap was getting tough, and it made me proud to be a planeteer. Major Joe Barris came in. He was carrying an envelope in his hand. Hello, Rip. How are you, Koa? Am I interrupting a private talk? No, Major, Koa replied. We were just passing the time. Want me to leave? Stay here, Barris said. This concerns you, too. I've been reassigned. My eight years on the platform are up, and that's all an instructor gets. Now I'm off for space for another job. Rip knew that instructors were assigned for eight-year periods, and he knew that the major specialty was the planeteer science of exploration. Barris's specialty required him to be an expert in biology, zoology, anthropology, navigation, astrogation, and inland fighting, not to mention a half-dozen other lesser things. Only ten planeteers rated expert in exploration, and all were captains or majors. Where are you going? Rip asked. Off to explore something? That's it. Major Barris smiled. Remember once I said, when they gave me the job of cleaning up the goopies on Ganymede, I'd ask for you as a platoon leader? Rip stared. Don't tell me that's your assignment. Almost. Tell me, would you recommend any more of your men for promotion? I'll need a new sergeant and two more corporals. Rip thought it over. Koa can check on this. I'd suggest making Peterson a sergeant and doused in Dominico corporals. Kemp and Santos already have promotions. That would be my choice, too, Koa agreed. Fine. I'll correct the orders in here and recommend the promotions. We'll get 16 new recruits here from the graduating class at Luna, and that will complete the platoon I'm supposed to organize. Two full platoons are waiting, and the new platoon will give me a full-strength squadron, except for the new officers. How about Flip Via for a platoon commander, Rip? Rip knew that the Mexican officer was among the best of his own graduating class. I have to admit prejudice, he warned. Flip is a pal of mine, but I don't think you could do better. His curiosity got the best of him, and he asked, 
Can you tell me what this is all about? Joe Barris reached over and rubbed Rip's bald head. By the time the fur grows back on that irradiated dome of yours, I'll be on my way with Koa. Peterson and the new recruits, Santos and the rest of your crew will report to Terra Base. Flip Via will join them there. You'll be on Earth leave for eight weeks, but it'll take about that much time for Flip and the men to assemble the supplies and equipment we'll need. He pulled a sheaf of papers out of an envelope. Koa, here are the orders for you and your men. They say you're to report to Special Order Squadron 7 on Ganymede. SOS 7 is a new squadron, the first one organized exclusively for exploration duties, and I'm its commanding officer. Koa, you'll be my senior non-commissioned officer. I want you and Peterson with me because you can organize the new recruits en route. They have a lot more to learn from you than they got in their two years of training. You'll make real planeteers of them. He picked a paper from the sheaf and waved it at Rip. This is for you, Lieutenant Foster, he read. Foster, R.I.P. Lieutenant, S.O.S., Serial 7943, authorized eight weeks Earth leave upon discharge from hospital. Upon completion of leave, officer will report to Terra Base for transportation to S.O.S. 7 on Ganymede. Joe Barris handed Rip his new orders. You'll be on the same ship with Flip Via and your men. Flip will be another of my platoon leaders. I'll be waiting for you on Ganymede. The moons of Jupiter will be our home for quite a while, Rip. Our first assignment is to explore Callisto from pole to pole. Rip didn't know what to say. To serve under Barris, to have his own men in a regular squadron platoon, to have Flip Via in the same outfit, and to be assigned to exploration duty, dirtiest but most exciting of all planeteer jobs, it would be just too much. He couldn't say anything. He could only grin. Major Joe Barris looked at Rip's shiny head and chuckled. From what I hear of Callisto, we're in for a rough time. Your hair will probably grow back just in time to turn gray. The End This is your narrator, Jim Campanella. We hope that you've enjoyed this Uvula audio presentation of Rip Foster Rides the Great Planet by Harold Goodwin. Performance copyright 2009 by Uvula Audio, all rights reserved. Many of you probably recognize the opening theme as a MIDI rendition of the BBC Red Dwarf theme by Howard Goodall. Our own theme is not quite up to the standards of the BBC, and we apologize to Howard. Uh, We tried our best. The haunting closing space theme is called Dream Whistle and was written by Dewey DeLay. It is available on SoundDogs.com. Please feel free to write us and tell us what you think at uvulaaudio at uvulaaudio.com. You can join fans on MySpace or our Facebook page. Just do a search on Facebook for Uvula Audio to become a fan. We are now available on iTunes for download. Just do a search on iTunes if you want to find us, and we will pop right up. As usual, check out our Cafe Press website for t-shirts, etc. For other Uvula Audio titles, please go to our website at www.uvulaaudio.com. If you like our podcast, please feel free to tip us whatever amount you may like using the PayPal link. All money will go toward maintaining the podcast in the future. Our next podcast will be on the adult cast. We will be presenting the seven-story mountain, which is the autobiography of Thomas Merton. That is a bit of a departure for us, but the book reads like a modern-day version of St. Augustine's Confessions. It is a fascinating look into one man's faith journey. After Merton, we will be taking on a bear of a project. We'll be going back to Doc Savage and presenting the Johnny Sunlight Saga. Sunlight was the only villain who ever escaped Doc and had a return visit. 
We will be presenting two doc books consecutively, The Fortress of Solitude and The Devil Genghis. We are all looking forward to those presentations. From all of us at Uvila Audio, we thank you.